Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. I got an email not long ago from a United States Marine. Did I hear the Marine maining call in the back back there? You may have heard that. I was actually in the Navy for eight years, which, by the way, stands for never again volunteer yourself. But this guy was in the Marine Corps. He wasn't writing me, however, as a tough guy. He was actually writing me as a distraught father. He said, my daughter was the top Christian student in her high school class. She helped lead the youth group at church. She won several scholarships from Christian organizations that she could take to any college she wanted to. So she wanted to go to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill to win the campus for Christ. There needs to be one for Christ, very liberal school. It's about three hours from where I live in Charlotte. I spoke there last year, very liberal school. Anyway, he said, this father said, I sent my daughter there and four weeks, into her first semester, I got a phone call from her. Her words devastated me. She said, Dad, I don't believe in God anymore. Don't believe in God anymore? What? He said, I got in my car. I drove four hours down to Chapel Hill. I sat down with her that weekend, and I got nowhere with her. What do you mean you don't believe in God anymore? What happened? And she said, well, you know, I've got this New Testament professor who's an atheist. Yeah, they teach the, uh, the atheists teach the New Testament classes there. And he said, we don't even know who wrote the Gospels, and the Bible has errors in it, so, Dad, I'm an atheist now. Now, ladies and gentlemen, do you think that this young woman, by the way, that's not her, but you get the idea. Do you think that this young woman in four weeks investigated all the evidence for and against Christianity and made a rational decision it was false? No, you couldn't do that in four weeks. What happened instead? What happened instead is she went off to the college unarmed. What's the easiest way to get picked off in a war? It's to not know you're in one. And we're in a war for the hearts and minds not only of our young people, but for all of us. The world is not neutral out there. The world is trying to pull you away toward its way of thinking things, not the Christian way, not if Christianity is true, the truth. And I hope to show you today that it really is true. Now, do you think this woman is typical or atypical of young people who go to college, Christians who go to college? Yeah, it's typical. About 75%, three out of every four young people who go to church their, their entire lives walk away from the church once they go to college. Now, there's a number of reasons for this, but one of the reasons is intellectually they don't know why it's true. You know why they don't know why? Because we've never told them why. We simply say, hey, believe this. We haven't done what Peter told us to do when he said, always be ready to give an answer for everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. Now, that last part, gentleness and respect, is hard for me because I'm originally from New Jersey, okay? But we're supposed to give evidence, give a reason for the hope that we have. And actually, it's not that difficult to show that Christianity is true. You only need to answer four questions in the affirmative to show that Christianity is true. In other words, if you investigate these four questions, I think you'll realize that the answer to these four questions is yes. And if the answer to these four questions is yes, then Christianity is true. What are the four questions? Here are the four questions.
Now that is some pretty grooving music, isn't it? Yes, that is actually from our TV show, which is on every Wednesday nights at 9 and 1 a.m., actually be 8 and midnight here. It's on DirecTV channel 378. How many people have DirecTV? Can you show your hands, please? DirecTV. Seven of us. Come on! <laughs> friends don't let friends watch cable. If you want to get out and have enough faith to be an atheist, you've got to get DirecTV. Actually, that's not true. Anyone have Roku? You know what Roku is? It's like a... You got Roku? NRB TV. Check it out, NRB TV. If you don't have DirecTV or Roku, there's this new thing just out called the Internet. Have you heard of this? Okay, if you got the Internet, it's streaming on our website, crossexamine.org, at those times. You can watch it. You can also watch it on our app. I'll tell you about that later. We're also on radio every Saturday morning at 10 a.m. Uh, and if you can't watch it or listen to it then, it's podcasted. It's 9 a.m. here, obviously, uh, and uh, it's on our app. You can listen to it anytime you want. What we do is we present evidence for Christianity, and we cross-examine ideas against it. Now, why are these the four questions, truth, God, miracles, and the New Testament? These are the questions we'll go over here today. Well, the first question, does truth exist? I mean, if there's no truth, or if it's just true for you but not for me, or all truth is relative, you've probably heard these claims, then quite obviously, the Bible can't be true. Of course, if there is no truth in any book written by an atheist, can't be true either. Right? Of course there's truth. We'll, t we'll deal with that first. Second question, does God exist? You can't have a word from God if there's no God. If there's no God, you might as well throw the Bible away and every other book that talks about God. But I hope to show you this morning that there really is a theistic God. What's a theistic God? A spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful, moral, personal, intelligent creator who created all things and sustains all things to this very instant. We'll look at three arguments for that being very quickly. The third question is, are miracles possible? Obviously, the Bible can't be true if miracles are not possible. And a lot of people have trouble believing in miracles. Gee, I've never seen one, can't believe miracles. You know, they, they don't happen anymore if they ever did. Actually, I think not only are miracles possible, but the greatest miracle in the Bible has already occurred, and we have scientific evidence for it. Then and only then, we'll look at, that, at, at uh, the, uh, the miracle here uh, in a few minutes. Then we can get to the key question, is the New Testament true? The New Testament doesn't have a prayer if there's no truth, no God, or no miracles. But if truth exists, if God exists, if miracles are possible, then we can see if the events of the New Testament really did occur. Do we have evidence that they really occurred? Did Jesus really die and rise from the dead? Chris just said it was, you know, the center of our faith. He's right about that. Did it really happen? Now, some of you will look at that going, wait a minute, Frank, do you believe the Old Testament's true? Well, look, if the New Testament's reliable, you get the Old Testament thrown in. Why? Who's in the New Testament that can authenticate the Old Testament? Look, if you're ever in Sunday school and you're asked a question, what's the answer? It's always Jesus. Okay, it's very simple. Yes. Okay. Yes, Jesus. If Jesus really is God, as the New Testament documents claim he is, now that's a big if, but if he really is God, whatever God teaches is true, Jesus taught the entire Old Testament as the word of God. So if the New Testament's just reliable, you get the Old Testament thrown in. Now, we go through a lot of evidence to try and get to that point in the book I'm actually just going to give you an overview here today. If you want to go further, you can get the book on the book table. You can also get a 12-part DVD set uh, from our TV program that's over seven hours long that goes through all this material in greater detail. There's a new book on the, on the table as well called Stealing from God and Christians. This book 
is not about tithing, okay? I hear people say, is stealing from God about tithing? No. The subtitle of the book is Why Atheists Need God to Make Their Case. I've noticed when atheists are arguing against God, they're actually stealing aspects of reality that would only exist if God existed to say God doesn't exist. They're stealing from God while they're arguing against him. That's what that book's about. Now, by the way, all the proceeds from the sale of the books and the DVDs will go to feed needy children. Mine, okay? (laughs) Just so you know, I've got three sons, so I need some help. Actually, they're grown now. The uh, oldest two, they went to college, and they were on their way to college, and they go, hey, Dad, after college, we think we want to go in the military. What should we do? I said, well, look, if you want to fight, go Navy. Why? Because wherever there's a problem, we just pull our aircraft carrier right up, and we take care of it. We don't have to ask for permission to use runways or any of that. We just take care of it. But if you want a nice life, go Air Force. So they went Air Force. The oldest is an intelligence officer. By the way, he just won a Ph.D. from the uh, Air Force. They're going to pay for his Ph.D. program. It's amazing. He already, he's already gone to seminary now while he's been in the Air Force, so they're giving him a, a Ph.D., which is a great, great blessing to him. And he's, I mean, the schools he can go to are amazing, like Yale, Harvard, Stanford, all these schools, and they're going to pay the whole deal. Anyway, that's the oldest son. The second son is a KC-10 pilot. A KC-10 is a big plane, like a DC-10, if you think of uh, the commercial version of it. But it's a big plane, and it refuels other planes. So what we say about Spencer is every day he flies up to 30,000 feet, he sits around, and he passes gas. (laughs) And he gets paid for it. Every man's dream. (laughs) If I got paid to pass gas, I'd be a multimillionaire already. The third son is not in the military, but he is out of the house. He's an engineer. He's, uh, he's out of the house. And so my wife and I, for about the past uh, two and a half years, have been empty nesters. Took us a while to get used to that. About 10 minutes. <laughs> That's how long it took to change the locks. <laughs> Do we have any empty nesters in here? Uh, we got plenty in here. You notice how clean the house stays when they're gone? I mean, when they're home, you got to clean it every two hours. When they're gone, every two weeks maybe, right? I mean, we love our kids, but they're messy. Anyway, before we go through this material here, uh, I want to mention that I'm going to be going through it very quickly, and I can't show you everything I want to show you given time constraints. So if you want this PowerPoint presentation I'm about to give you um, in a PDF form, just go to that website, crossexamine.org forward slash FF. That stands for Fearless Faith. That's a program we do. But in, in any event, type that into your browser, send us an email, and we will email you this PowerPoint presentation plus some other stuff for free. We're not going to give your email address to anyone else. We just want you to have it so you can look at it at your leisure because I'm going to go through it quickly. I'm going to leave out a lot of slides, all right? So write that down. You're not going to find a menu item on our website. You've got you've to know that. You're the only people that know that. I'm just telling you what it is, okay? Crossexamine.org forward slash FF, all right? You guys ready to go? All right, let's start here at point one. Does truth exist? Now, this is going to be very brief. We spent hours doing this on a college campus. This is going to be quick, so we're going to go quickly. Here we go. Whenever you start talking about truth, you always have to start with Jack Nicholson. Right? Because Tom Cruise had him on the witness stand, and he said to him, Colonel, I want the truth. And Nicholson said, That was even weaker than the 9 a.m. group. 
If he said it that way, the movie would have gone nowhere. Let's try it again, okay? Colonel, I want the truth. Much better, much better. Well, there's a lot of people that can't handle the truth. They're saying there is no truth. You got your truth. I got my truth. All truth is relative. You've heard these claims, right? If you don't get anything else out of what we talk about here this morning, if you get this one idea down, it's going to be worth your time. In fact, this is the most important thinking skill I've ever learned, and I did not learn it until I was 33 years old in seminary. I already had a master's degree, and I didn't know I knew this, to show you what a doofus I was. In fact... You probably already know this, but you might not know you know it, okay? This thinking skill here. And once you get it down, you're going to become a fearless defender of the faith, a fearless apologist, someone who doesn't say you're sorry. You give evidence for what you believe, and you can point out the flaws in other people's thinking. Here is the thinking skill, by example. If someone were to ever come up to you and say, there is no truth, you should ask that person a question. What should the question be? Yes, if somebody says there is no truth, you're going to say, hey, is that true? Is it true that there is no truth? Because if it's true that there is no truth, the claim there is no truth can't be true. But it claims to be true. Did I say that right? I know that can give you intellectual constipation if you think about it long enough. But that's because it's self-defeating. It's like saying I can't speak a word in English. If I were to say I can't speak a word in English, you'd say, hey, you just said that in English. Or it's like saying my parents had no kids that lived. Or it's like saying my brother is an only child. Some of you will get that tomorrow, okay? <laughs> it's like saying everything I say is a lie. Some of you will never get that one, all right? These are all self-defeating statements. And the process... The thinking skill you need to get good at is to turn the claim on itself. Turn the claim on itself. See if the claim meets its own standards. So if somebody says there is no truth, you're going to say, is that true? How about if somebody says all truth is relative, what are you going to say? Is that a relative truth? How about if somebody says there are no absolutes, what are you going to say? Is that an absolute truth? Or are you absolutely sure? How about if somebody says you can't know anything, what are you going to say? Then how do you know that? How about if somebody says, you should doubt everything? This is a skeptical claim. What should you say? Should I doubt that? You ever notice that skeptics are skeptical of everything but skepticism? Why don't they doubt that? Why aren't they skeptical of that? How about if somebody says, you ought not judge? You probably heard this, right? What do you say to that? Then why are you judging me for judging? See, it's a judgment to say, thou shalt not judge. By the way, did Jesus just say, don't judge? What did he say? He said, judge not, lest you be judged. By the same standard you judge others, you'll be judged by that standard. So before you try and take the speck out of your brother's eye, you hypocrite, take the log out of your own eye first, then you'll be better able to help your brother. Is Jesus telling us not to judge here? No, he's telling us to take the speck out of our brother's eye. That involves making a judgment. He's simply saying, get that problem out of your life first so you can better help your brother. So this is not a command not to judge. Forgive the double negative. It is a command on how to judge. In other words, don't judge hypocritically. If you've got that problem in your life, get it out of your life first and then go help your brother. It would be complete suicide to say don't make judgments. You made 100 judgments just getting over here this morning. Everybody makes judgments. Atheists make judgments. They judge Christianity's wrong. There is no God. These are judgments. The question isn't whether or not you can make judgments. The question is, are your judgments true? That's the question. By the way, I've noticed that Jesus did save a very stern rebuke for people who were 
judgmental. Who were the judgmental ones in Jesus' day? Pharisees. Who were the Pharisees? What did they do? What was their job? They were the political and religious leaders of Israel. They ran Israel. They were part of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. They were politicians. And Jesus went after them. Are you telling me Jesus got involved in politics? Yes! And he wasn't so nice doing it. If you think Jesus was a sweet guy who's never said a bad word about anyone, you have never read Matthew chapter 23. What does he say in Matthew chapter 23 to these scribes and Pharisees? What are you scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites? You strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Oh, you look great on the outside. You're whitewashed tombs, but on the inside, you're full of dead men's bones. You go a mile to make a convert, and then once you make them a convert, you make them twice as much a son of hell as you are. How will you avoid being condemned to hell? What? Sweet and gentle Jesus said this? Yes, Jesus was not Barney. Can't we all just get along, boys and girls? No. He was not Mr. Rogers. Can you say kindness, boys and girls? I mean, he was kind most of the time, but he certainly didn't go around saying, this sermon brought to you by the letter E. No, Jesus was tough, and sometimes you got to be tough and tell people directly that there's a problem. So don't buy into this idea that you can't make judgments. Everybody makes judgments. The point I want to make and make sure you have in this section is this. Can everybody see that statements like this shoot themselves? Can everybody see that? Can everyone see? To say there is no truth is to shoot itself. Don't make judgments to shoot itself. You can't know truth to shoot itself. All truth is relative. Shoots itself. This thinking skill, turning a claim on itself is essential. If you get good at it, you will, it will prevent you from going down these cul-de-sacs that people want you to go down and it'll save you a lot of pain and agony by following false worldviews because so many of them are just self-defeating, okay? All right. We know that truth exists. The second question is, is it true that God exists? So relativism or postmodernism is false. Why? Because relativism and postmodernism says there's no truth. They're claiming it's true. There's no truth. Self-defeating. Next question is, does God exist? And there are three arguments that we'll briefly mention for a theistic God. What's a theistic God? That's a God who's beyond the world, who created the world, and sustains the world. And these three arguments will start with the beginning argument, the argument called the cosmological argument. It's the argument from the beginning of the universe. Cosmological comes from the Greek word cosmos, which means world or universe. It says if the universe had a beginning, it must have had a beginner. The second argument is the argument from design, known as the teleological argument. Telos is a Greek word meaning design or purpose. And it says if there's design in the universe and design in you, there must be a designer. You can get scientific evidence for these arguments by looking through a telescope or looking into a microscope. The third argument, however, doesn't have scientific evidence behind it, yet it's the argument we've all known since we were very small children. And it's the argument from morality known as the moral argument. And it says if there's one thing morally wrong out there, just one, like it's wrong to torture babies for fun, there has to be a God. Why? Because if there is no standard beyond humanity, if everything's just a matter of opinion, then you can't say that torturing babies for fun is really wrong because that's just your opinion against someone else's opinion. There has to be a standard of righteousness or goodness out there in order for you to say anything is right or wrong. If that 
being doesn't exist, everything's a matter of opinion. Let's take a very brief look at the first argument, the cosmological argument, and this is the argument that many say points back to the big... It's time to wake up, friends. Now, some of you going, uh, Frank, you know, we're Christians in here. We don't believe in the Big Bang. You guys don't believe in the Big Bang? I believe in the Big Bang. I just know who banged it. In fact, the evidence for the Big Bang is so good that you even have atheists admitting it. Stephen Hawking, a physicist who's an atheist, put it this way. Almost everyone now believes that the universe and time itself had a beginning at the Big Bang. Now, Hawking tries to come up with another explanation other than God for the cause of the Big Bang, but he fails. Think about this. Atheists aren't even arguing over this. They're admitting it. They try and come up with other explanations, but think about this. If space, matter, and time had a beginning, whatever created space, matter, and time can't be made of space, matter, and time. In other words, the cause must be spaceless, timeless, immaterial, also powerful to create the universe out of nothing, personal in order to choose to create, because you have to be a person to make a choice to create, also intelligent, because as we'll see here in a minute, the universe is designed. Now, when you think about a spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful, personal, intelligent cause, who do you think of? That's what we mean by God. All the evidence for this is in the book. We don't have time to go into it now. But that seems to be the best explanation for the beginning of the universe. The second argument is the argument from design, known as the teleological argument. Telos is a Greek word meaning design or purpose. And um, this, when it comes to the universe, is sometimes called the fine-tuning of the universe. The universe is so fine-tuned some of the parameters or factors about the universe, some of the constants about the universe, just the way the universe is set up. If it were slightly different in any one of a number of areas, there would be no universe and there would be no life. For example, the expansion rate of the universe. Stephen Hawking, again the atheist, put it this way. He said if the expansion rate of the universe was different by one part, in a thousand million million a second after the Big Bang, the universe would have collapsed back on itself or never developed galaxies. In other words, if the expansion rate from the very beginning was slightly different, imperceptibly different virtually, nobody would be here. There'd be no universe. Now, what does it say about macroevolution? Nothing. But I often hear atheists saying, well, if macroevolution's true, there's no need for God. Even if it were true, it's not. But even if it were true, before you ever get to biology, you need a universe. The universe is designed from the very beginning. These are called the initial conditions of the universe. You can't say we evolved to this point. Why? Because this is from the beginning point of the universe. The same spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful, intelligent being that created the universe is the same being that seems to have fine-tuned it to be just where it is right now. And there are so many of these aspects of our universe that are just so. For example... Our solar system appears to be designed with us in mind. Where are we in the solar system? Right there, third rock from the sun. Who says you don't learn from sitcoms? There it is, right there, okay? If we were just a little bit closer to or a little bit further away, we couldn't survive. A little bit closer to, we'd burn up. A little bit further away, we'd freeze. We are what scientists call the Goldilocks zone. It's not too hot. It's not too cold. It is? That's a lie. It's too hot here in the summer. 
okay? Axial tilt, 23 and a half degrees. Change that slightly, we don't exist. Earth rotation, 24 hours. Change that slightly, we don't exist. Oxygen, 21% in this room right now. If it were 15%, we'd all suffocate. If it were 25%, spontaneous fires would break out. If Jupiter was not in its current orbit, we wouldn't be here. What does Jupiter do for us? Jupiter is a cosmic vacuum cleaner. Its gravitational force is so strong that it attracts most of the meteors and space junk to it rather than us. In fact, if you take a close-up look at Jupiter, you know what these purple marks are right here? These purple marks are comet fragment strikes that are bigger than the Earth. Thank God for Jupiter. Because if Jupiter wasn't there, we wouldn't be here. In fact, you want to see the size of Jupiter? Check this out. There's Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, Earth. Look at poor Pluto down here. You know, Pluto recently has been demoted as a planet. I don't know about you, but I think it's size discrimination. <laughs> All right, take a look at this. You can hardly see Pluto. There it is right there. Take a look at this. That's Arcturus. That's another star in our galaxy. Here's the sun over here. Jupiter is one pixel in size on this scale. Earth is invisible. Pluto? Forget about it. All right, keep an eye on Arcturus. You got Arcturus here? Where's Arcturus now? There it is right there, left of the white star Regal. That's Antares, another star in our galaxy. The sun is one pixel in size on this scale. Jupiter is invisible. Earth, Pluto, forget about them. The heavens are awesome. This is in our galaxy. This is not outside our galaxy. These are stars inside our galaxy. And you know what? The average distance between stars in our galaxy is 30 trillion miles. All that distance is necessary for us to exist here on Earth. Now, how far is 30 trillion miles? How far? Far. Take you at least two tanks of gas on a Toyota Prius <laughs> to go 30 trillion miles. A number of years ago, we were in the Desert Museum in Tucson, Arizona. We're out there at night, and if you ever go to the Desert Museum in Tucson at night, they'll take you outside on a clear night. You can see thousands of stars in the sky. So we're out there one night, and the guide goes, wow, it's so clear tonight. If we look up at 9.03, we'll see the space shuttle in orbit. I said, oh, come on, we're not going to see the space shuttle in orbit. I mean, it's only 120 feet long. It's 350 miles up. Oh, me of little faith. At 9.03, the guide goes, look! And we look up in the sky about 70 degrees above the horizon. There's an object streaking across the western sky relative to us about like this. I mean, it's really cooking. When it got right about here, it disappeared. I don't know whether Scotty beamed it up or what. Actually, what happened was, despite the fact that we were in total darkness, the space shuttle was so high up that the sun was still reflecting off of it, and when it got out of the range of the sun, we couldn't see it anymore. Now, when the space shuttle was in orbit, the space shuttle was traveling at about 18,000 miles an hour. That's five miles per second. You got trouble getting to work in the morning? Take the space shuttle. You'll be five miles a second. Think about how fast that is. Well, I did a little calculation to try and figure out how long would it take us if we could get in the space shuttle and go from our star, the sun, to another star an average distance away, 30 trillion miles in our galaxy. So how long would it take us to go 30 trillion miles at five miles a second? Anyone? 
How long do you think it would take? Ladies? Huh? Long time? <laughs> it would take us 201,450 years. That means if you got in the space shuttle at the time of Christ and started traveling to another star in our galaxy an average distance away, you'd be less than one hundredth of the way there right now. And we're going to explore space. No, we're not. We're, we can't even get out of our solar system hardly. And how many stars are out there? You know, the number of stars that are out there are about equivalent to the number of grains of sand on all the beaches on all the earth. And they go from one grain of sand to another grain of sand going five miles a second. It'll take you over 200,000 years. See this picture here on the left? That's from the ground. You see that little square in the middle? That's the square on the right from the Hubble Space Telescope. Those are stars, galaxies, heavenly bodies. Why does the Bible say the heavens declare the glory of God? Because the closest thing in our experience to the heavens, or to God, are the heavens. They appear to be infinite to us. They're not, but they're the closest to infinity that we could think of. The third argument is the argument for morality. Let me ask you a question. Let's suppose that you go out on a hike somewhere and you get lost and you're out for several hours. Your cell phone dies, you got nothing, no way to figure out how to get home except you have a magnetic compass. And you pull this magnetic compass out of your pocket and you know the arrow is supposed to point to magnetic north so you can figure out where north is so you can get, get back home, right? But instead of pointing to magnetic north, you pull out the compass, and no matter which way you turn, the compass always points to you. How effective is that compass going to be? You know where you are. You're trying to figure out where north is. The compass isn't going to be very helpful at all. Well, here's my question. Does the compass of life point to you? When something doesn't go right, when something doesn't go exactly the way you want it, do you think God doesn't exist or he's evil or something? Does the compass point to you when it comes to behavior, right and wrong? Do you get to decide what's right? Or does the compass point somewhere else? I was in South Dakota earlier this year, well, actually last year at this time, why I went to South Dakota in February, I don't know. But I was invited to speak at a church, and uh, we had several nights at this church, and we were going through this, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist evidence. And uh, the second night, there was a Q&A mic set up, and a couple of young men in their 20s got up to the microphone, and they expressed a lot of skepticism about God existing and what I was saying. And I didn't think anything of it, because it happens all the time. You call something, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist, atheists will show up and challenge you. That's fine, that's great, that's what it's for. Anyway, the last night I was there, about a 50-year-old man gets up to the microphone and he has a question written on a piece of paper and he starts to ask the question, but he breaks down crying. He can't even ask it. So I walked down off the platform and I came right down to his level. He had this question on two sheets of paper. It was a two-sheet question. So he handed it to me and he said, just read it. Just read it. So I'm reading it to myself as I'm walking back and up to the platform trying to digest this question. And I realized that by the time I got back up to the platform, this man was upset for two reasons. 
Reason number one, he and his family just discovered recently that a middle-aged man, a friend of their family, man in his 40s, had been sexually molesting his daughter from the time she was age four to the time she was age 14, right in their own home under their noses. The second reason this man was upset was because the two young men who were there the night before in their early 20s were his sons, who used to be Christians and are now atheists because they're saying if there is a good God, he never would have allowed this to happen to our sister. There's no God. In fact, one of them was in seminary, left seminary, and claimed to be an atheist. So the man's name was Steve. I said, Steve, it's okay to be mad at God. The Bible writers are mad at God several times. Read some of the Psalms. Read Habakkuk, read Lamentations. They're mad at God. It's okay to be mad at God. He can take it. But there's going to come a point when hopefully your sons will realize that's not a good argument against God. And I said, do you think maybe we could talk about this privately after the seminar rather than during here in front of all these people? He said, sure. So when the seminar was over, we went to dinner. It was like 10 p.m. For about an hour and 15 minutes, he just told us everything that happened. It was cathartic for him to say so. And I said to him, I said, Steve... I don't know when the right time is, but you'll know the right time. I want you to say this to your sons. If there is no God, what that man did to your sister isn't really wrong. It's just your opinion. Because if there is no standard of righteousness or goodness beyond humanity, everything's a matter of opinion. The very reason you're upset, and you should be, is because you know a great injustice has been done. It's wrong. Oh, by the way, the guy who did this, everybody knows who did it. He's still walking the streets. Why? Because every time the trial comes up, Jessica, the girl who was abused, psychologically checks out. She can't testify against him. If she doesn't testify against him, he doesn't go to jail. So I said, when the time is right, I want you to say this to your sons. If there is no God, then the man who did this to your sister will never get justice because he's not going to get justice here on earth and he's not going to get justice in the afterlife because if there is no God there is no afterlife do you really think that's the way this universe is the very reason you're upset rightfully so is because you know a great injustice has been done the only way justice can be can exist and be done is if there's a being who can ensure it's going to be done Now, Jessica is now 18 years old, and she decided that she wasn't going to let this go without doing something about it. So she actually wrote a book. Here it is. It's called Not Your Princess by Jessica Mitzel. Here's somebody you can pray for, because not only is she now getting emails and phone calls from others who are going through this, but she's having a difficult time dealing with it herself. Now, if there is no God... What that man did to Jessica Mitzel isn't really wrong. Do you believe that? No. No one in here believes that. No one here believes it's not wrong to abuse children like this. If that's the case, God exists. Because life's moral compass is God's nature. And Chris has been talking about this on Wednesday nights. If you don't come Wednesday nights, you don't get this. You see, if evil exists, God exists. Why? I know it sounds counterintuitive because 
If evil exists, then good must exist because evil doesn't make sense unless good exists. But good can only exist if God exists because he's the, what we mean by the standard of good. So evil doesn't disprove God. Evil may prove there's a devil out there, but evil doesn't disprove God because there'd be no such thing as evil unless there was good, and there'd be no such thing as good unless God existed. So when you put together these arguments we've just been through, the cosmological, teleological, and moral arguments, you realize that there's a spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful, intelligent, personal, moral being. That's what we mean by God. Now, how do we know this isn't Allah or some other theistic God? For that, we've got to go to the next question, and that is miracles. Are miracles possible? Because God can tell us which theism is true through miracles. That's what miracles are for. They let you know, hey, this person speaks for God. Moses does miracles. Why? Because God is trying to tell you, listen to Moses Jesus does miracles. Why? Because God is trying to tell you, listen to Jesus and Paul and Peter and these people. Now, some people believe miracles are impossible, like Noah. How can you believe in Noah and the ark? That seems crazy. Or a resurrection. How can you believe in a resurrection? Jesus resurrecting from the dead. Everyone I know who's dead is still dead, right? How can you believe in a resurrection? And for some reason, the big problem miracle in the Bible is Jonah. Is that a whale of a tail or a tail of a whale? What is the deal with Jonah? Can you really believe in Jonah? Question. What is the greatest miracle in the Bible? For those of you who weren't here in the first service, what is the greatest miracle in the Bible? No, the resurrection's easy compared to the greatest miracle. Maybe the most important miracle, but what's the greatest miracle? The greatest miracle in the Bible is the first verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If that verse is true, every other verse in here is at least possible, right? I mean, if it's true that God can create the universe out of nothing, can he do whatever he wants that's not logically impossible inside the universe? Sure, if he can create the whole universe out of nothing, can he raise Jesus from the dead? Can he do the Noah miracle, the Jonah miracle? Can he part the Red Sea? Can he do all these things if he can create the whole show? Of course. Well, the interesting point is, is we now have scientific evidence the first verse of the Bible is true. We have philosophical evidence that there was a beginning as well. If the first verse is true, the other verses are at least possible. You with me? You see what I'm saying here? Now, some people will say, I can't believe in miracles because I've never seen one. That's not a good reason not to believe in them. Why? You believe in a lot of things you've never seen. You've seen your mind. You've, ne you've, ne you've never seen. You've, you've never seen your mind, right? You believe in that. You're using it right now. You've never seen my mind. Hopefully you believe in that. You've never seen the laws of logic. You use them every day. Laws of mathematics. You use them every day. You've never seen love. Oh, you've seen it expressed, but what is love? What is it? Turns out to be God's nature. You've never seen justice. Oh, you've seen justice done, but you've never seen justice. It's not a physical thing. You've, you know it, but you've never seen it. These happen to be attributes of God. You've never seen George Washington, yet you believe in him. And by the way, you ought not see a lot of miracles, if any, today. Why? Not that God can't do miracles. He can do them anytime he wants. But the reason you ought not see a lot of miracles is because, by definition, miracles have to be rare if they're going to get our attention. Miracles have to be very rare events 
If miracles were occurring all the time, there'd be, they wouldn't get our attention. For example, if people resurrected from their dead routinely, what would the resurrection of Christ mean to us? Nothing. You go to somebody and you go, Jesus rose from the dead for your sins. And the guy goes, so what? Uncle Bill just rose from the dead two weeks ago. Now i got to give the inheritance back. No, they have to be rare events. They have to be against the backdrop of regular natural laws in order for us to even detect miracles. So, if the first miracle has occurred, the resurrection, or I should say the creation of the universe out of nothing, the resurrection and other miracles are at least possible. Now we can move on to the final question, did they really happen? Did the miracle of the resurrection really occur? We know the truth exists, God exists, and miracles are possible, but have any other miracles occurred since the first one? And there are several chapters in the book on this. I just want to spend five minutes on two points to show you that I think the New Testament writers are telling the truth. The first is they put embarrassing details in the text. What are embarrassing details? If there's something embarrassing to the author or authors, it's probably true. Why? Because you're not going to invent details that are embarrassing to you. You may... You may make up stuff that makes you look good, but you're not going to make up stuff that makes you look bad, right? In fact, let me ask the question this way. How many people in here have ever lied to make yourself look good? If you don't have your hand up right now, you're lying to make yourself look good, and it's not working. We know you're lying. All right, how many people in here have ever lied to make yourself look bad? You don't do that. Why would you lie to make yourself look bad? Well, temporarily. You may make yourself look bad like if you're going to scam somebody, right? Like in pool or something, right? But, or in golf, right? But no, you're not going to make yourself look bad. You're not going to invent things that make yourself look bad. Well, it turns out the New Testament writers, it's true of the Old Testament as well, but the New Testament writers have filled the text with embarrassing details about themselves and even potentially about Jesus. That's why we say, duh, they're not making this up. For example, notice the New Testament writers depict themselves as dim-witted all the time. They don't understand what Jesus is talking about. They don't get what he's trying to do. In fact, they don't understand why he came until he's already ascended to heaven. And then finally they go, wow, I could have had a V8. And then their leader, Peter, is called Satan by Jesus. This is their leader. Do you think Mark, who wrote that down at one point, said, you know, Pete, I think we ought to make this a real interesting story. Let me, let me have the Lord call you Satan. <laughs> what do you think Peter would have said? Have him call you Satan. <laughs> Why is he calling me Satan? I'm the leader here. And then Peter says, I'll never deny you, Lord. What does he wind up doing? He denies him three times. And then at the crucifixion, the disciples run away. Run away. This is like a Monty Python movie. And who are the brave ones? Ladies, who are the brave ones? Who are the brave, who, who are the brave ones? The women, that's right. The women are the brave ones. Why, the men ran away. Now, who wrote this down? Men. Now, what man is going to invent that he was hiding for fear of the Jews Why the women went down and discovered the empty tomb? Would any man in here invent that? Would you invent it? I mean, if I was there, if I was inventing it, I'd write something down like this. Let's see, we, uh, we march right down there and overpowered that elite Roman guard. Yeah, that sounds good. Peter said, get out. Philip, roundhouse kicked him. John said, we'll be back. And then on Sunday morning, we marched right down to the tomb, and we saw Jesus emerging from the tomb, and he congratulated us on our great faith. 
And then we went and comforted the trembling women. I would never say I was Mr. Sissy Pants. Why the women went down to discover the empty tomb. And oh, by the way, why would you never say the women were the first witnesses in that culture? Why was that a no-no in that culture? Yes, because a woman's testimony was not considered on par with that of a man. So if you're making up the New Testament story, you'd only have the men be the first witnesses. Yet all four Gospels say the women were the first witnesses, which is telling us what? They really were. As embarrassing as it was to admit, they really were. I had a lady come up to me once. She said, I know why Jesus appeared to the women first. I said, why? And she said, because he wanted to get the story out. I said, that is an excellent point. I had not thought of that. Because, ladies, when your man comes home from work, does he say much? There could have been a nuclear explosion down at the plant. He's not going to tell you. You'll see it on the news before he tells you. You'll be watching the news going, hey, hon, what the? Oh, yeah, I forgot to tell you. The nuke blew up a couple of days ago. I've been hot for the past three days. Hey, what do you got for dinner? You know, not going to tell you. Also, notice... They say that Jesus, his own family, in Mark chapter 3, think Jesus is out of his mind. They want to come and take him away. Do you think they invented that? Also, in the genealogies of Jesus, there are two prostitutes, Rahab and Tamar. Do you think Matthew and Luke got together at one point and said, you know what, I really think we need to spice up the Messiah's bloodline a little bit. Let's put a couple of prostitutes in there. Say Rahab, Tamar, the Kardashian. No, let's not put that. No, that would, that would, go, that would just go too far. They're not making this up. In fact, out of the five women that are mentioned in the bloodline of Jesus, four of them aren't even Jews. Rahab, Tamar, Ruth, Bathsheba, who, by the way, the writer doesn't even put his name, her name there. You know what he writes? Uriah's wife. Ooh, that's a slam. Why? Because Uriah was the husband of Bathsheba, whom David had killed so he could have her. He won't put her name in there, but he'll say Uriah's wife. The only woman in the bloodline who's a Jew is Mary. They're not making this up. As embarrassing as it is. There are several other embarrassing details you can see for yourself, but we got to move on because we got to get out of here. One more reason I believe they're telling the truth is excruciating deaths. These people who were in a position to know whether Jesus had risen from the dead died brutal deaths when they could have said, look, he never rose from the dead. And by the way, all of the New Testament writers, with the exception of Luke, were Jews. They had no motive to make up a resurrection story. Why? They're Jews. They already, th they already think they're God's chosen people. Why have they invented a resurrected Jesus? And by the way, I get this question. Maybe you do. Are there any non-Christian writers who um, talk about Jesus and the apostles? Actually, there are. There are 10 ancient non-Christian writers within 150 years of Jesus' death who briefly mention what happens to Jesus and the apostles. None of these people are eyewitnesses, but they're mentioning the events. But you know what's behind that question? The question, are there any non-Christian writers? What's behind the question is the idea that, you know, you can't trust these people because these people were religious people who embellished it. You know, religious people embellished stuff. They made it up. If you think about that for more than 10 seconds, you realize that's not a good objection. Why? Because the people that wrote this down were all Jews. 
They had no motive to make up a resurrected Jesus. What did they get for saying Jesus had resurrected from the dead? They got kicked out of the synagogue, then they got beaten, tortured, and killed. Last time I checked, that was not a list of perks. We're going to start a new religion. We are? Yeah. What will it get us? Well, we'll get kicked out of the synagogue, then beaten, tortured, and killed. Well, sign me up. <laughs> you know, what a great idea. No, I don't think so. They had every motive to say it didn't happen, not every motive to say it did. You say, wait a minute, Frank. You're saying martyrdom proves Christianity? What about some martyrs in Islam, right? They'll kill themselves for Islam. That doesn't mean Islam's true, does it? No, it doesn't. Why? Because there's a big difference between the Muslim martyrs of today and the New Testament martyrs of New Testament times. The Muslim martyrs of today don't have evidence that Jesus rose from the dead, they, or that, uh, that uh, Islam is true. They just have faith. The New Testament writers, on the other hand, were in a position to know that Jesus had risen from the dead. Why? They saw Jesus. They touched Jesus. They ate with Jesus. They verified with their own senses that Jesus had risen from the dead. You see, many people will die for a lie they think is the truth. Nobody will die for a lie they know is a lie. And the New Testament writers were in a position to know whether it was a lie or not, and they went to their deaths anyway. In fact, we could put it this way. The New Testament's historically reliable. There's a chapter in the book called The Top Ten Reasons We Know the New Testament Writers Told the Truth. I just briefly touched on two of them. But if we had to sum the whole thing up, I would put it this way. The New Testament writers did not create the resurrection. The resurrection created the New Testament writers. There would be no New Testament without a resurrection. Do you realize that we don't believe the resurrection because the Bible says so? The resurrection occurred... And then the Bible was written. Do you realize there were thousands of Christians long before an, a line of the New Testament was ever written? Because the New Testament was developed because the resurrection occurred, not the other way around. The event occurred, and then they wrote it down. So, let's sum the whole thing up. Does truth exist? The answer is... Yes, self-defeating to say it doesn't. If somebody says there is no truth, you're going to ask? Is that true? Does God exist? Yes, we've got the argument from the beginning of the universe, the design of the universe. There's also design in you. And morality, the moral argument. Are miracles possible? What's the greatest miracle of all? The creation of the universe out of nothing. We have evidence for that. Even atheists are admitting it. Is the New Testament true? We have a lot of evidence for that. Didn't have time to get into much of it, but you saw some of it. So if you want to go further... Don't forget the books and the DVDs are back there. There is that website again. Type that into your browser. We'll get it to you. We're on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. In fact, our, if you like our cross-examined Facebook page, tomorrow night at University of Central Oklahoma, we'll be streaming a live event at the University of Central Oklahoma where I'll go through some of this evidence. And we'll have Q&A with atheists there. So if you want to watch it, you can. It'll be on Facebook Live, but you have to like our page to see. It starts at 7 p.m. tomorrow night. Okay? We're, uh, and by the way, we're so into YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook, we've actually combined these three into one social media platform. We call it UTwitface. <laughs> so you may want to sign up for UTwitface. Okay? We're on radio, and we're on uh, TV, and if you don't do anything else, please download the free app. What's the free app? The Cross-Examined app has not only all of our radio programs on it and streams our TV show, there's a quick answer section on there. So you don't have to have all this stuff memorized. It's on your phone. 
So you could be having lunch with somebody, and they say something that's wrong about Christianity, and you're not quite sure how to answer it. All you need to do is take out your iPhone, your droid, or if you're one of the eight people in the world with a Windows phone, it works on that too. And as the person is talking, you can pull your phone out and get an answer. So you can say, hey, hang on, I'm getting a text. Hey, what about this? All right. Download it. It's free. We're up to about 120,000 downloads. So people are finding it helpful. Now, why do you want to do all this? Because you don't want this happening to you, your child, or your grandchild. Because the evidence for Christianity is there. Let me just give you one last thought, one last question that you can ask people. In fact, it, it works better for you to ask questions rather than make statements. So let me give you a question you can ask, and this question is in the app. Tomorrow night at Central Oklahoma, if there's an atheist there um, and they get a little hostile at the mic, I'm going to ask a question. And this is a question you can ask anybody who's not a Christian. And it cuts right to the chase. The question is this. If Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? Ask that question. If Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? I've had atheists stand at the microphone and say, no! No? Wait. You claim to be an atheist, a beacon of reason, and yet I asked you if Christianity were true, and it were, if it was true, would you believe it? You say, no. How's that reasonable? How's that rational? It's not. Why? The problem isn't here. The problem's here. They don't want it to be true. Why? Because they don't want there to be a God. They want to be God. We see this in ourselves, too, don't we? We suppress the truth and unrighteousness, as Paul says in Romans 1. We don't want there to be a God half the time. Why? Because we want to be God. We're not on a truth quest. We're on a happiness quest. And we're going to believe whatever we think is going to make us happy. Here's the problem. You can make yourself happy over the short term by doing a lot of stupid, sinful things. But over the long term, it's a disaster. Everyone in here who's over 40 knows what I'm talking about, right? Many of us have tried it. It's a disaster. So ask the question, if Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? In fact, let me ask you right now before I go. I want you to think of somebody. If you're a Christian, I want you to think of somebody right now who's not a Christian whom you'd like to be a Christian. You got, you got, you got someone in your mind right now? Okay, here's my question to you. Is that person on a relentless pursuit of truth apathetic or maybe even hostile? How many say the person I'm thinking of right now is on a relentless pursuit of truth? They really want to know the truth. Can I see your hands, please? I see three hands. How many say, no, they're apathetic, they don't really care? Doesn't matter what I do, they don't care. Okay, that's probably 40% of the room. How many say, no, they're actually hostile? If I bring it up, they're mad, they're angry, they don't want to know it. That's the rest of us. So the question you need to ask them is, if Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? And see what they say. Because too often, we want to suppress the truth to go our own way. The problem isn't here, the problem's here. Talk about the evidence after you see if they're really open to the evidence. Make sense? All right, God bless you guys. Pastor Chris, take it away, my friend.